When I first started in ministry, back in a church that uh, feels like old enough that Paul actually wrote us a letter, we of course got all of our music out of the hymnal. We had one pianist, one. She's the sweetest lady, but she insisted that I pick the hymns. You know your sermon, pastor. You pick the hymns that go with it. You have to understand though, I'd only been in the church for seven years by then, so it was hard for me to navigate this revered scroll with its secret codes and its strange language, all of its these and thous and wilts. And up until now, I'd always depended on a sage, a hymnal sage, if you will, a divinely ordained sage that would get up every Sabbath and say, turn in your hymnals to number so-and-so. Now I'm the one picking them. It was daunting. And every now and then, this sweet lady would mention another volume of Apocrypha that was estranged to my ears. She would say it, the old hymnal. And when she said it, there was a reverence in her voice when she referred to it. The old hymnal. She had one copy of it and she kept it in, in the bench and she would pull it out and she would play from it and, and with, with reverence she treated it. Well, once she mentioned, mentioned that there was a hymn by Fanny Crosby that used to be in this mysterious old hymnal and it was called Someday the Silver Cord Will Break. She told me it was a beautiful hymn and that it's mostly sung at funerals and memorials. And it went like this. Someday the silver cord will break and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the presence of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face. Tell the story saved by grace. I don't understand why that's not in the new one but it was only in the old one. And I understood everything in that hymn except for the title and the first line. Someday the silver cord shall break. It wasn't until later that I learned that it's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And when we started this book, I encountered a tad uh, bit of some dismay in your faces. And, 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 and uh, uh, I guess a, a fear or a trepidation saying, how in the world is he gonna talk every Sabbath from a book that we only use to speak at at funerals? And you note that immediately in chapter one, it's not a book that you would buy after reading the first few verses. So it really was too depressing sometimes, even for funerals. I have to say though, after studying it this far, I have to conclude that it isn't the book of Ecclesiastes that leads to despair. The book is simply a dead-on portrayal of life on this planet. What it's like to be under the sun. It's living under the sun that's depressing and demoralizing. And that the book was written because there are things that need to be said about under the sun, about our lives, about our natures, about our motives and the ruination of us that really is. 
It has to be said in order to come to the conclusions we need to come to and the principle the book brilliantly illustrates to get us there. Chapters 10 and 11 were mostly proverbial type sayings and I feel comfortable moving on to the conclusion because I don't think that we'll miss much. And I wanna thank you for digging in with me because it's been such a great ride for me. I hope it has for you. So we come to chapter 12 and the conclusion. The conclusion begins with a familiar theme that Solomon has for us. He begins in verse one, it says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Hmm. I have no pleasure in them. What's he saying? He's saying something that I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone else in here has ever felt. I, what he really is saying is, is that getting older really stinks, doesn't it? Then the Kohelet does what he does so well after saying that we have no pleasure in these days of aging. He does what he does so well. He puts together some poetry to at least maybe put a little bit of a sheen on it. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return with the rain. In the day when the guards of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, the women who grind cease working because they are few, and those who look through the windows see dimly. It's poetic, but he is describing what happens, what is happening to each and every one of us. And there comes a, t a point where even the strongest men are bent under the weight of their age. Women cease grinding. They cease grinding because the ones that are healthy enough to, to continue, there are so few of them because the others can't do it anymore that they can't work any longer either. And then this line, those who do look see through the windows dimly. Our sight dims. Did you know that cataract affects nearly 22 million Americans age 40 and older? By age 80, half of all Americans have cataract. In the ancient world, very few people made it to the ancient age of 40. So if they did make it to 80, cataracts was probably inevitable for anybody that was getting old. His poetic way is you try to look for, if you, if you even bother to look up and look out the window, you see dimly. He goes on to say, when the doors on the street are shut, the sound of the grinding is low. The one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When we think of hearing loss, sometimes we think that it's all about volume, that all we have to do is up the volume for hearing loss and we can cure it. But it's as much about distinction of sound as it is about volume. You know, the little bones in your ear that pick up the wavelength and allow the brain to separate and interpret the sound so that we can hear, they calcify. They don't vibrate as they used to. So it's the distinction of sounds that becomes more difficult too. For those of us who are a little hard of hearing, it's harder against ambient sound, isn't it? It's harder to hear when there's background noise going on because we don't distinguish the sounds as good as we could. 
which explains why not hearing, not hearing, and all of a sudden, a bird can pierce through and hit you and wake you up. I had a member in that first church that I was talking about that said that he was going to have to quit coming to church because when he had his hearing aids on as loud as they needed to be, if a child was running through and just happened to pierce the sound, it would, it would startle him and he, it would uh, uh, you know, really truly scare him. Aging really, really is not for the faint of heart. Diminished vision, diminished hearing. The march continues, it sounds like. We just continue to march. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets. Heights. I used to love to dive. I didn't love so much to swim. I used to say I learned how to swim so I could get from uh, the pool to the ladder without drowning so I could hop right back on the diving board. I dive all day. Low dive, high dive, and in our public pool, that's as far as it went. Remember, the high dive is three meters. It's 12 feet, 12 feet high dive. I loved just diving off this from the ages of eight to pretty much 18 or 19. I loved it. I got to my 40s though, and we were on a trip, and we were hiking, and there was this place that had this beautiful waterfall and pool. And everybody knew that it was safe enough to dive into the pool from the waterfall, because it had been said that it was deep. It was 18, 20, 25 feet deep. And the waterfall itself, the platform where we were standing, wasn't any higher than a high dive. It was only 12 meters or say. And I got up there and I was going to do what I would normally do off of a high dive and I couldn't get the image out of my head of slipping on a rock just as I jumped and have my legs come out from underneath me and never even make it to the water. I could not get it out of my head. It took me 45 minutes just to jump off. Scared of the heights. No longer daring, no longer having that kind of courage. I like where it says the grasshoppers drag themselves along. I always liked grasshoppers. I hate anything that crawls, but I liked grasshoppers because when you came up to them, they jumped away. See, and that's my kind of bug, one that knows what's what and jumps away and gets out of my way. That's what I like. So I could walk through a field of grass and the grasshoppers just jump, jump, hoppy, 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 jump, jump, jump. You come up to one that's doing this though, he doesn't got very long, does he? So you love the poetry that the Kohelet brings to us about aging and about dying. And then comes the line that Fanny Crosby used. Before the silver cord is snapped, and the golden bowl is broken, and the pitcher is broken at the fountain, and the wheel broken at the cistern. Even in English, the poetry comes through. And, and, and to me, it's such a, a, a striking description of where we find ourselves when we get old. Before the silver cord is snapped. Snapped, broken, broken, 
broken. Even the poetry comes through. There's a snapped, which pretty much happens anytime I get up to go to walk. And then there's broken, broken, and broken. The march has a sound. It has a cadence. It sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? It sounds like us when we try to run, when we try to walk, when we try to merely move. And he's talking about a cistern. He's talking about a well being able to get water. And if you'll notice, everything that, that is needed in order to get water, it's ruined. It's all broken. If the cord is broken, you can't attach it to the bucket. You can't lower the bucket down. Even if you could bring the water back up, the pitcher that you would pour the water in is broken. But the wheel is broken too. You can't get any water. It's done. The life cycle is completely done. It's beautiful poetry. Beautiful poetry of a terrible existence under the sun. At least when we get our age. And there's some people here that don't even absolutely know what I'm talking about. Tom and Beryl don't know what I'm talking about. They will. And when they do, we'll be long gone so they'll be complaining to someone else their age about what it's like to get here. But after the poetry comes the verse that's most well known by us, by Adventist. Why? Because it's the proof text for what we call our doctrine of the state of the dead. The dust returns to the earth after all this is done. If the, if the life cycle that water brings, then, then, then all that's left is dust. Water can't get to the dust, so the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. It's our proof text. We believe in the conditional mortality of the soul. We do not have inter- eternal spirits of their own accord. Our spirits don't exist. What makes up the soul is the creator forming a body and then animating it with his Holy Spirit. It's his spirit, not ours. The Holy Spirit animates the body and it's it's the life-giving source of all life. He did all that. He formed them from the dust of the ground and then breathed into them the breath of life. As long as you have a living body and the Holy Spirit, you have a life. You take away either one of those. When the body gets old and returns to dust, the spirit returns back to God. The life force goes back to God. And that's what led Solomon to come to the beautiful conclusion that he came to, is that death awaits us all. And if there's one consolation in death, is that death is death. It's a sleep. It's it's a rest that anybody and everybody, rich or poor, oppressed or oppressor, it's the same fate and the same reward, the rest that we get, to get. There is life and there is death. So is it the truth? I believe it's the truth. I really do. It is the truth. But what's interesting, he says, is that however, uh, however truthful it is, that there's something about being under the sun that even the truth has a vain 
quality to it. Because he says, he, so he, he does the proof text of the state of the dead. The body returns to dust. The spirit returns to God. He does the proof text. It's the truth. There it is. Life and death. Okay? There it is. But he then says, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, says the Kohelet. All is what? All is vanity. He's saying even the truth is vanity. And you got to be thinking, What? especially to a Seventh-day Adventist, because you start messing around with the truth. They say, wait a minute, that's why we're here. We're here for the truth. We're here for, for the true revelation of God. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. We are looking for the truth. And here the Kohelet says, well, under the sun, even the truth is what? Even the truth is vanity. See, because sin's selfishness only sees and uses truth for its own advantage. Even something as beautiful as the truth, any of God's truths, can be made vain or can be made vexing, if you will, when, it, when this selfish, sinful nature gets a hold of it and begins to use it for my own selfish purpose. Isn't that the vexing he's been talking about for the past 11 chapters? That even the truth, even beauty is vain because of our selfishness. Our natures turn that which is good into vanity because it has the wrong motive and on top of that covers up the motive with something that appears good. Jesus told the self-righteous more than once. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look nice and shiny on the outside but just open it up and take a sniff. So I used to ask this, what if the doctrine of our doctrine of the state of the dead, if you will, isn't really about the immortality of the soul? And maybe it's not about a debate at all. Maybe it isn't about truth versus error. And after this study, I don't think that that's really what it is anymore. Solomon didn't make that statement in order to start a debate about life and death and false doctrine versus true doctrine. After this study, what I see is that what this is really about is the mercy of God. Death is the end of life, but it is also the most merciful thing that can be done for a creature who has to toil under the sun. But we can, if we want to, make it unmercifully about preaching truth and laying people on the wrong side and identifying them with the wrong side and putting people on the right side and continuing to marginalize and allow our selfishness to divide us when actually we could be brought together by this because what it's really about is God's never-ending mercy that he has in mind for whoever is toiling under the sun, if they would just choose it. Creation has fallen so far that even something good can be a sin. And by the way, committing the sin of goodness is nearly the unpardonable sin because if it's a sin of goodness, then we're never going to be convinced that we need to confess it because it isn't bad. It looks good on the outside. 
A self-righteous person has nothing to confess. Jesus said, I only came for the sinners. Only those who are sick are in need of a physician. We use truth for our own gain to be better than somebody else. And the Kohel had already taught us that nothing trumps our sinful nature under the sun. Even the most wisdom that came from God and imbued in one human being that had ever been imbued before, and he said, there was nothing I can do about it. It did not trump his selfish nature. He could not overcome that nature with even all the wisdom of the world, of the universe given by God. The pure truth, his truth, God's truth, his doctrine, listen to the teacher. He says, I tried. The teacher sought to find pleasing words and he wrote words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings of the one uh, given by one shepherd. Pleasing words, he says, I spoke plainly. I, I, I want you to know, I want everybody to know what I've gone through. I want the wisdom to come to you. Words like goads. Uh, a goad is, is, is what, the, what the shepherd used to move them along. A crook was to, to bring them in line, but a goad was to prod them. And, and he said, if you put, a, you put a nail on the end of the goad, and it'll really get people going in the direction they want to. But also, he says, those words can be like that, but also words, uh, nails would be put into the walls and you can hang things from them. So he's saying wise words are like nails that you can hang stuff from. It holds weight. You can count on it. But he said anything or else beyond this, anything or else beyond words just being uh, uh, wise and something that can be done. Anything else, he says, anything beyond this, my child, beware of making many books because there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Even study can be ruined under the sun because the more I study, the more right I could get and if I do nothing about my nature, then the more right I get, the more wrong you'll be. And we'll just continue to vex each other under the sun. They could be translated this way. Two other translations of that verse. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. A further word against them, my son, be warned. The making of many books is without limit and much study is a wearying of the flesh. Anything beyond it, he said. The warning is against endless writing and studying, trying to find more goads. By the way, what happens to people who are made of free will, who are continually goaded in the back with something? He's the same one that wrote a proverb that said a brother offended is more strong, stronger than a fortress. You offend somebody, you goad them when they don't want to be goaded. You throw your pearls before swine. You try to make them do what you want them to do, which, by the way, is, is what selfish nature does with a beauty like truth and wisdom. More goads, more nails. Eventually, they will be so offended, you'll never, ever reach them again. Not even the truth can do anything under the sun because of our nature. 
So remember what the book taught us about oppression too. Again, I saw all oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power with no one to comfort them. The problem with having nothing but truth and power and using that truth and power selfishly is that even the people that are supposed to be good, the the believers that are supposed to be evangelizing, witnessing, bringing good news, all they're doing is, is, is learning more truth and becoming more right. And if the people who are supposed to be bringing comfort won't even do that, then he says, this is what I saw. Everyone's oppressed and no one is there to comfort them. So under the sun, we're sinful, we're self-centered, we're cruel by nature. Even the truth in our hands is corrupted by our selfish motives. Wisdom, wisdom from God even, is a vexation, he says. I had the wisdom and it vexed me. The church, no matter how pure its doctrine, no matter how wonderful its truth, cannot do anything about the nature that seeks to oppress with that truth. All you have to do is look at a little history of the Christian church and come up to today and look at its reputation. Back in 2010, there was a survey taken by a Toronto newspaper because it was coming ahead of a debate that was going to happen between uh, Christopher Hitchens, a well-known atheist and author in England, and Prime Minister Tony Blair. And the poll polled 18,000 people in 14 nations. In other words, 14 nations, 18,000 people in each of that. That is one of the biggest uh, polls I've ever seen. But the thing was, was that it only contained one question. And the one question is, is religion a force for good? Notice, not Christianity, is religion a force for good? These are the percentages of the countries that said yes, that overall said yes. Saudi Arabia uh, at the very top and at the very bottom, Sweden at 19. Look at where the United States is. One, two, three, four. It's in the top five. Philip Yancey, in commenting on this this research, says 52% of those surveyed judge that religion does more harm than good. Although the poll did not delve into what might lie behind such responses, I could not help noting that with a few exceptions, the countries that had the most history with Christianity, especially in Europe, had the least respect for religion as a force for good. In contrast, Russia scored much higher despite its atheist leaders' attempt to stamp out religion in the last century. I also noted that the poll did not include countries in Africa and South America that are right now experiencing resurgence in religious faith. But the United States retains a basic respect for religion, though it may be following European trends, surveys show a steady rise in the nuns. Now one third of those under the age of 30 claim to belong or claim no religion. One third of young people claim that they are one of the nuns, N-O-N-E. They claim no religion, a category larger now than Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Lutherans combined. By far, the nations with the most and longest exposure to Christianity, 
scored the lowest. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, wrote John in the preface to his gospel. The church has worked tirelessly in the part, truth part of the formula, witnessed the church councils, the creeds, volumes of theology, denominational splits over minor points of doctrine, all doing what? All looking for a bit more truth, to have more truth. The church has worked tirelessly on the truth part of the formula. But I yearn for the church to compete just as hard in conveying what Paul calls the incomparable riches of God's grace. Often it seems we're perceived more as guilt dispensers than as grace dispensers. That's what hits me about the Kohelet. He's not talking about him, he's talking about us. We've experienced this. Here we are at whatever stage in our life is, looking back over our spiritual life, looking back on, on coming to Jesus and trying to live for Jesus and trying to live for the church, and we all have the regrets. We all have the things revealed to us. And even within our own church, we see this. Somebody looking for more truth than somebody else. I've got respected colleagues, teachers, professors, and pastors who have to defend their reputations every day on their social media because they're suffering wounds from people who claim to have more truth than them and they're bearing the same church name. We're eating our own. And we forget what we've been told. No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. Notice what she says. Not the power of knowing more truth, not the power of being able to prove more truth, not the power of being righter than somebody else, but the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. Ellen White, The Ministry of Healing. Page 470. No other influence can surround the human soul. She has the answer to the Kohelet, doesn't she? The Kohelet says, I look all around and all of God's wisdom is nothing but vexing. The selfish nature of humanity is, is so vexing that the best thing anybody could do would be to die to get away from this, to find peace. Ellen White has found the cure. Ellen White answers, the ministry of healing answers back to that. No other influence can surround the human soul has such power as has the influence of the unselfish life. What's she talking about? She's talking about whether or not we're going to live out these selfish natures. And if we continue to do so, even in the, in the guise, if you will, of knowing truth for the end time, the strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian, we will not be using the greatest force that we possibly could have, and that is to love somebody as God has loved us. So what now? The Kohelet says the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil.
He says there's a madness. And I tried to feel that madness and to quell that madness and to quench that madness with wisdom and, and with folly and everything else. And he said, it's an ocean that is never filled by all the rivers. The, the human nature, the selfish nature is an ocean that is never filled even though all the, the rivers of the world are flowing into it. And the one that had the most wisdom said, I couldn't do anything about it than what had not yet, than what, uh, only what had been done before. How did Solomon come to this conclusion? How did the Kohelet begin to put these words together? It was simple observation of the world and his own nature and his nature of how he interacted with that world. His legacy is telling us where it could lead. That's what he wanted. He wanted us to know where it has led him and what his final conclusion is. And it's a beautiful thing, as I pointed out before. What does it mean to us? Is that you look at Ecclesiastes, you look at how honest and forthright he was, that there's nothing that we can do about these natures. I can only do what already had been done. I oppressed so many in people. I enslaved, I starved, I taxed. Every indulgence was for myself, for myself, for myself. And he says, and where else now though, now that I'm old and I'm looking at death, where can I turn? What can I do with this? For 12 chapters, he said it all and he decides to lay it all in front of God. Now for those of us who live uh, so many centuries later, for those of us who live and, and, and believe that we can judge, it'd be a lot simpler and a lot cleaner if he would just take his deserved desserts and just go away, right? Just die and stay dead. But he threw a whole wrench into the works. He decided he was gonna confess. He decided he was gonna bring it to God and tell him what God already knows, but what Solomon says, I got nowhere else to go. Where else? Who else am I gonna bring this to? And this confession, I do believe, because right here he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment. He's got, how many deeds does Solomon have? He doesn't care. He, there's nothing he can do with that burden. So he's gonna bring it to God. Not being guaranteed anything. He's gonna bring it to God. And the beautiful thing is that what does that mean to us? Was that God took whatever this confession was and he decided to, make sure that it got written down and preserved so some 4,000 years later, you and I could benefit from his confession. We can be shown what to do with our sin. We can be shown what can happen if we would do that. Solomon, so far from perfect. You know, even his confession isn't perfect. I left out a couple of chapters back in chapter seven. Chapter seven was that one that we so beautifully looked at, that beautiful crafted application of grief that he wanted to be able to give people. He said, well, if, if grief is all we've got, then, then why not, why not uh, do it right? Why not, why not acknowledge it? Why not do it healthfully? Why not help each other? That, that was that chapter that, that we all just, I, I, to me, I was, I was blown away by. But even in that one, there comes a verse where it, he makes it sound like that the reason that he did all this was that he's trapped by a woman. One woman. <laughs> 
Just a little bit of blame, not a perfect, you know, not a perfect confession, but just a little bit of blame. And I find it funny because 700 wives and 300 sex slaves, and he claims he was trapped by a woman. Hmm. But he did speak of another truth in that chapter. One that to me just salvages the entire thing. He says, surely there's no one on earth so righteous as to do God without ever, do good without ever sinning. <laughs> so a thousand women are one. He says, this is all our problem. The wisest sinner that ever walked the planet and he comes to the conclusion that he can still take it to God. So he's got no assurance except that God once said that we could count on him to do what he wants. We could count on God for his will to be done. And for Solomon, that's all he wants now. Whatever God wants will be just fine with me. At the very least, I'll be dead, he says. I'll get complete rest, complete peace. At the very least, that's what I'll have. He gets to go to his grave uh, being unburdened. He gets to go to his grave being, being just completely, not, uh, maybe not cleansed, not in his mind, but, but able to, t- to leave this burden completely behind with God. Oh, and, oh, by the way, his reputation and everything else, he leaves it there. That's the least that is promised to him if he brings it to God. The most? The most? Well, again, Our scripture reading said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did Solomon claim to have no sin? (laughs) If he had started Ecclesiastes that way and said I had no sin, we'd laugh him right off the planet, wouldn't we? So he started, right? He, he began to confess. He knows that he had sin. He was full of it, and he begins to confess. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So Solomon knew he was, he, that he was with sin, so we have to ask then, what about us? What about you? Do we claim to have no sin? No, none of us do. But sometimes we feel safe that our sin is just a little bit less than someone else's. That if we claim we're a little better off because our son certainly isn't as great as Solomon's. And we feel confident about that and we say, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm so much better than Solomon was. I know I'm not perfect, Lord, but I'm so much better than that tax collector over there. I believe that that's what verse 10 is talking about. It isn't what being forgiven and cleansed is about. It doesn't say confess as long as there are a safe number of sins or or that they're safe enough in severity, that they're just vegetarian enough that we can imagine God forgiving them. And of course, the little ones, the vegetarian ones are mine. The great ones belong to people like Solomon and tax collectors and non-believers. He doesn't say that. He just says, if there are sins, ours, then confess them. If they're yours and they belong to you, then confess them. Don't try to blame anybody else. Don't try to compare yourself to anyone else. 
We come into the presence of God. He doesn't want to talk about Solomon. He wants to talk about you. He wants to talk about me. So what has our Kohelet done? We get to hear him. He's ours. You know, every time I said that uh, he's the wisest man to walk the planet, it really is that he's the second wisest man to walk the planet. But what hit me about Ecclesiastes is that he certainly is the wisest sinner to ever walk the planet. Which means he does know us. He's ours. Ecclesiastes is ours. This is our letter. This is our path. This is our way of finding a little bit peace as we continue that march that seems to get faster and harder and quicker coming up in our field of vision. So along with 1 John 1, 9, we all have to have our own Ecclesiastes. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our Ecclesiastes. The confession is the letter. Each of us get to be the Kohelet to put the confession together. And when we do, it leads us right into the cradle of the wisdom of God. Not just receiving wisdom of God, but actually being cradled in his wisdom. We get something that Solomon was never promised. He, he, he went to the grave at least going to God. So don't ask me if you'll be in the kingdom because all I know is this, that if we confess, he who is faithful and true will forgive, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Solomon certainly confessed. Our confession is our Ecclesiastes. It's our chance. And we get that chance every day. One last thing that you could add to 1 John 1, 9 is to be completely assured of this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For those of us who believe that, those of us are called then to make sure that we treat people the way that we've been treated in order to make life under the sun a little less vexing. And when we do, we open up just a little bit, just a little bit, the possibility for anyone else to know that they could have this too, no matter who they are. If Solomon could have it, so could we. Thank you so much for hanging in there with a book like Ecclesiastes. I know it wasn't easy, but like I said, I loved the ride. I enjoyed the ride. I loved it all and mostly because I got to do it with you. The words of the Kohelet. Thank you. Happy Sabbath. And I'll miss you. I'll see you soon.